The scripture this morning is from Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 38. But I say to you who are willing to hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, offer the other one as well. If someone takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks, and don't demand your things back from those who take them. Treat people in the same way that you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, why should you be commended? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, why should you be commended? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, why should you be commended? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be paid back in full. Instead, love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. If you do, you will have a great reward. You will be acting the way children of the Most High act, for he is kind to ungrateful and wicked people. Be compassionate, just as your father is compassionate. Don't judge, and you won't be judged. Don't condemn, and you won't be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good portion, packed down, firmly shaken, and overflowing, will fall into your lap. The portion you give will determine the portion you receive in return. Good morning. My name is Megan, and I'm the teaching pastor here at Trinity. And before we um, dig into the scripture today, I wanted to answer a few questions that have been coming up about a new program we are starting at Trinity called Alpha. Um, the last three weeks, we had a conversation together about sharing our faith, and we began talking about this Alpha program that's starting in September, and kind of the same questions are beginning to come up. So I created a little Q&A brochure in your bulletin today, but I wanted to highlight a bit of this. Um, the Alpha program is not a program that is designed for Jesus followers. It's not a Bible study. It's not a new kind of small group for someone who is already a committed believer in Jesus. Um, the Alpha program is designed as an easy, safe way of introducing people in your life, maybe coworkers or friends or family members who aren't sure what they believe about God or about Jesus, um, to this conversation about faith. Um, so, so the way that this works, um, we have paper invites over here by the mailboxes. We're going to have some social media invites coming out soon. You can make a verbal invitation. Um, but the idea is that you would invite someone in your life to be a part of this group and attend with you. It's an 11-week small group designed specifically for people exploring questions of faith and meaning. Um, you can come with them if it makes them more comfortable, or they can come themselves. Um, but the point is the kind of early stage exploration. There's a discussion every week. Um, it's not about judging people or trying to correct them or trying to persuade them of anything. It's just opening up a kind of safe space to have conversations and let people express what they believe and what they're thinking and why. 
Um, so we're hoping that you will consider making some invitations and just putting this on the table. Um, if you didn't hear me say this before, um, Alpha has found in surveys that 40% of people say they would love to have a conversation about faith and meaning. That's 40% of people who are not currently believers or church attenders. So roughly one in two people you know that is not currently practicing faith of some kind would still be interested in talking about questions of meaning. Um, so our Alpha team here at Trinity for this round are Carlisle Slaybaugh, Liz Brinkman, and I. Um, and I'd love to talk to you more if you have questions about how this works, um, but also you can see that flyer for more information. I invite you to pray with me as we approach God's word this morning. Lord, we thank you for speaking words that even after thousands of years are somehow always timely and relevant. We pray that this morning you would speak through your word by the power of your spirit so that we can live for you. Amen. You know, one of the most surprising things about Jesus, I think, is exactly who he chose as disciples. Now, the most famous disciples of Jesus are probably the four fishermen that he picked up on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. A lot of people maybe know Peter or Andrew or John. Um, but the most interesting picks, the most controversial picks, the picks that would have caused a real scandal in Jesus' day, were two people that are hardly ever mentioned. And their names are Matthew and Simon. Not Simon Peter, other Simon. Now, to understand why these guys were such a strange pick, you have to know a little of what was going on and kind of the, the cultural water at the time. Um, Israel, the land of Israel where Jesus lived, was occupied by the Roman Empire at this time. And so basically, all of public conversation was politically charged. Like, what should we do about this? Like, the occupation is making everybody crazy. What is the proper response? That's the kind of conversation you would have had, you know, around the well, the water cooler of its day. Like, that's what everybody was talking about. And people had different kind of opinions on what the right route forward was. Um, there were a lot of people up in, up in Galilee where Jesus' fishermen disciples were from. Um, people like these fishermen who would have almost never seen a Roman soldier. Right, that the occupation tended to be in the more like large populated areas. So somebody like Peter would hardly ever run into a Roman at all, but they still really resented the idea that somebody else was in charge and they particularly resented the taxes. So they resented it, but at the same time, these are normal people working blue collar jobs, trying to get through the day. And every time they tried to do something about it, like rebel, lots of people got dead. So, so the approach is basically to like complain about it, but like keep your head down and live your life and raise your kids and get your fish and just try and survive the taxes. Now, there were some, another group of people that were like uber religious people that were living down near the capital in Jerusalem who were seeing a lot more of the kind of chaos that was ensuing. And these uber religious people decided, you know, the best approach here is we're gonna go out into the desert and we're gonna withdraw and we're just gonna wait for God to show up. Now, we're going to try and keep our hands clean, not get into this mess that everybody else is in. So those people are out in the desert waiting for God to do something. Um, chances are that John the Baptist was a part of that group out in the desert. Then there was a group called the Zealots. And these were the people, like mostly, mostly young men, who were mad and were ready to kill or to die to be free. And they basically went around the countryside kind of planning and conducting little acts of terrorism that were like their best attempt at protest, 
right? Get, get these Romans, like kill them where you have to. Um, so, so a lot of violence was happening out of this group. They were making plans underground. And then there was finally a fourth group of people. And these group of people were like the pragmatists who said to themselves, you know, there are some things you have no control over, so you just got to adapt to the times, and maybe we can work this system to our benefit. And these are people like the Sadducees and the tax collectors. Hey, there's nothing we can do about the Romans, so we might as well get along and get a job for these guys that gets us some profit. Simon was a zealot. Matthew was a tax collector. I mean, just kind of wrap your head around that for a second. I have this vivid image in my mind of the scene of like how Simon comes to follow Jesus. Like Simon, this zealot, this revolutionary, he meets Jesus and he's like, hey, this guy is making these amazing speeches. He's a revolutionary too. And Jesus says, Simon, come follow me. And he's like, yeah. And then he shows up to dinner and there's Matthew sitting at the table. And Simon's like, Jesus, what the heck? Now, Matthew, meanwhile, is sitting at the table, and Jesus walks in with Simon, and Matthew gets Jesus by the collar and drags him into the kitchen and is like, Jesus, do you know who this guy is? Do you know what he does? And then these two guys pick opposite ends of the table, and they avoid contact, eye contact for the next year. Right? Like, I would have a little conversation with Jesus about this myself. Like, Jesus, leader to leader, like, this is a bad call. You put these two guys on your team, and they're going to ruin team culture forever. In Luke chapter 6, the, the passage we just heard part of it this morning, we actually hear the story of Jesus calling these disciples. Um, beginning in verse 12, this is what Luke says went down. And during that time, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night long. And at daybreak, he called together his disciples. He chose 12 of them whom he called apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called a zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor." So what Jesus did, he went away for the night, he prayed all night, he listened for God's voice, and he came back, and he picked this 12 that included both Simon and Matthew. And if you skip a little further into the chapter down the story, immediately after making this pick, Jesus has his like big crowd of disciples together, he's got his newly picked 12 there, and in verse 20 it says, Jesus raised his eyes to his disciples and said... In other words, Jesus like, looked around at this crew that he just picked, and Jesus makes a decision what he's going to cover for his very first lecture in being a Jesus disciple. Like, what will the first lecture be? Well, it turns out this first lecture covers two topics. Um, number one, verses 20 to 21. Jesus raised his eyes to his disciples and said, "'Happy are you who are poor.'" because God's kingdom is yours. Happy are you who hunger now, because you will be satisfied. Happy are you who weep now, because you will laugh. What is Jesus saying here? Well, first of all, when Jesus says, happy are you who are poor, you know who starts squirming in his very expensive robes? Matthew. 
right? This is a guy whose entire life has been defined by like, what is the best way to get money? And Matthew's uncomfortable and Simon's really happy. And then Jesus says, happy are those who weep now. And Simon's sword hand starts getting real twitchy. Do you know what Simon wants? He wants to make other people weep. In three lines, Jesus has just put both Matthew and Simon on notice. Hey, I want you guys here, but this thing we're about to do together is not going to conform to either of your agendas or party lines or patterns of groupthink. Like, where we're going here is going to defy all of the old allegiances that you are coming in with, both of you. Then just a little deeper down, uh, the next thing Jesus says, topic two of the first lecture, is what we just heard read this morning, and I want to reread just a couple verses. I say to you who are willing to hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If you love those who love you, why should you be commended? Even sinners love those who love them. Instead, love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return. If you do, you will have a great reward. You will be acting as children of the Most High Act, for he is, grateful, he is kind to ungrateful and wicked people. Don't judge, and you won't be judged. Don't condemn, and you won't be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Now, I ask you, how fascinating is it to consider that this first lecture... Jesus gives is on loving enemies. And there's a possibility the context of that lecture is not loving the enemies out there. It's about Matthew and Simon staring at each other. I mean, in fact, I think it might be easier for Simon to love the Romans than for Simon to love Matthew because he thinks Matthew should know better. Like, all of us, I think, can identify with this moment of looking across the table at another follower of Jesus and going... Ick. Like, how could you possibly be this wrong? Like, what is wrong with you? I've talked to so many of you lately who have said, like, the biggest struggle in my spiritual life in 2021 is loving my Matthew or my Simon. Right? That is, the, like, the biggest question that is on your mind as a Christian. And it's a crucial question because Jesus actually sets this question up by choosing these guys and opening a conversation in which Jesus says, you all who are following me, the thing that is going to be the most distinctive about my followers versus everyone else is people in my group are going to love their enemies. So how do you love an enemy like this? How do you love an enemy that is Matthew or that is Simon, that, that is a part of this kind of discipleship community around Jesus, but who you think is just profoundly, deeply wrong? That's the question on the table. Now, I think the answer to that question is really long and complicated. So all I can do today, I just want to toss out like a couple of thoughts that I have about this as I've been wrestling with it in my own life. And then if you, if you want to go deeper at 1030, we'll come in here and we'll kind of hash it out more together. But where might this start? Well, let me offer you just four quick thoughts I have on this. Um, number one, I had a woman contact me a while back and ask, ask if she could meet with me. And we sat down and she said to me, the reason I wanted to meet is I'm thinking of leaving my church and I want to know if it's okay. And I said, well, well tell me what's going on. Like, why are, why are you thinking of leaving? And she said, those people disgust me and I can't stand being around them anymore. 
Now, there are all sorts of good, legitimate reasons to change church communities. That's a conversation all on its own. But I, I said to this woman, you know, let's, let's start here. Like, whatever good reasons there might be to go, disgust is probably not one of them. Like, I've been hearing a lot of disgust and a lot of contempt coming from people lately, and that emotion might be hard to identify, but if you find your nose kind of twitching up or the, the side of your lip curling, like, that is an indication what you're feeling towards somebody is disgust or contempt. And I think the minute we start having those kind of emotions, that is like a spiritual warning sign. It's like a check engine light. Like, let's stop and assess what's going on here, because these emotions of disgust and, and contempt pretty much never lead to somewhere that is spiritually healthy for us or for anyone else. And what's interesting about disgust, I think, is it's a very different kind of emotion than anger. Like, anger and frustration, those are hard emotions to work through. They create tension in communities. But anger and frustration are healthy emotions that compel relationships forward. They often move people toward each other into challenging conversations where both people can grow. The problem with disgust and contempt is those emotions move people in the opposite direction. They're dehumanizing emotions. They're dismissing emotions. You gross me out, and I no longer want to be anywhere near you. Like, both, both Simon and Matthew come into this community of Jesus' disciples with serious issues that need to be addressed. Like, there is problems with Matthew's view of the world. There are problems with Simon's view of the world that have to be addressed. But Jesus also loved them both, and Jesus also chose them both. Their core identity is two people who are chosen and loved by God. And I think that the starting point, like when we think about loving enemies, the starting point is like that is people's core identity that everything else has to be based off of. Everything else we think about them, the interactions we have with them, this person is God's kid, chosen and loved by God, and my feelings are not God's feelings. Like my, my ick is not coming straight from the heart of God. God's work in other people is so often bigger and deeper and more complicated than my line in the sand that I drew. Or like what provoked the feeling I had today. Enemy love is not fundamentally about your feeling towards someone. Enemy love is fundamentally about acknowledging the worth that that person has to someone else. Right? The, the first step to enemy love, I think, is like spending some time just sitting in that realization. Like, I don't like this person. This person makes my skin crawl, but that doesn't mean they aren't loved by God. That doesn't mean God is not summoning them for a purpose. That doesn't mean God is not working in Matthew or in Simon, whatever my feeling about who they are today. Um, second thing I think that can be helpful to us is like, we really need to let go of the idea of contamination by association. Like, I find it so interesting culturally, we are really stuck on this right now. The idea that, like, if, if, I, if I am in relationship with somebody, if I am in proximity to somebody, like, I am being corrupted by sheer proximity to their badness. This actually comes up in the ministry of Jesus when Jesus calls Matthew the tax collector. And Matthew says, hey, Jesus, I got some other tax collector friends that would like to meet you. So Jesus comes over to Matthew's house for dinner. And what does everybody else do? They freak out. They're like, Jesus, what, what are you doing? Jesus, are you endorsing Matthew's lifestyle? And Jesus says to them, no, 
Sick people need a doctor. I'm showing up where the sick people are. But what Jesus will never do is participate in wrong actions. Right? When, when the sword comes out and people are ready to start chopping off ears, Jesus says, no, absolutely not. Like, I will have no part in this. I mean, when people are in the temple, um, basically like take, stripping money straight off the poor, Jesus says, absolutely not. I have no part in fleecing poor people. Jesus won't participate in what's wrong, but Jesus also will never let fear of contamination keep him from breaking bread with somebody. Because the minute we stop breaking bread with somebody, the minute we stop being willing to sit at the table together, change essentially stops because relationship is where change happens. There, there is nothing in Christianity that is about guilt by association. Christianity is the place people show up to the table together and get changed. Right? So, so, so if, they, if there's that fear like lingering in your head, recognize that fear is not coming from Jesus. That fear is coming from false religion of culture. Right? That, that's culture purity notions, not Jesus' purity notion. Um, third thing, what, what about the disagreement itself? Right? Like there, is a, there is a huge legitimate disagreement between Simon and Matthew about the right thing. What does Jesus do about that? Well, the answer to that is really complicated. Like, people were constantly trying to back Jesus into a corner and be like, Jesus, there are two sides. Which side are you on? And Jesus is really slippery. Like, he, he would never take a side cleanly. Like, he would never be like, I'm with the tax collectors or I'm with the zealots. Jesus' starting point in these conversations was always, the thing God is doing, this kingdom God is building, is bigger than the dividing lines that you all are creating. Right? Like nobody, nobody's group here has figured out exactly what God is up to. But, but the other thing is, it's not just that Jesus like avoids falling cleanly into the categories of the moment, but Jesus actually, rather than resolving this debate for Simon and Matthew, Jesus does something else. He sends Simon and Matthew both out with a job, and he says, go and feed people. Go and heal people. Go and cast out demons. I'm sending you all to go out and give to other people. Which means this disagreement they're having about Rome and like how do you respond to Rome, it doesn't suddenly go away. But suddenly this disagreement they're having about Rome is unfolding within the context of shared actions and shared sacrifices and shared risks. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but this has been a... a Profound experience for me. Like, there are people that I cannot stand on the basis of their Twitter profile. But, like, if we are sweating together, if we are sacrificing together to build something for somebody else, like, that person suddenly becomes lovable in a way they never could be on Twitter. Right? They become something more than just the opinions they have on one or two particular subjects that I don't like. They become a person that is like in the trenches with me side by side, like bleeding and sweating so that we can serve someone else and do something we both acknowledge Jesus told us to do. I think if we're at a really like deep stuck moment <laughs> with, with someone about like how do I love this person, the best thing we can do is like answer the call of Jesus to do something together that we both believe Jesus has bound us to. And like meet that person, see that person again in the trenches, answering Jesus' call with us. 
right? The most important thing about people is not the ideas they get right in their head. Like, the most important thing is what is coming out of our lives together. Like, are there ways that we can find common projects together that move us toward the actual call of Jesus to the world? And fourth and final thing, Jesus gives this really interesting argument against judgment that I think is very underrated. Jesus says, don't judge, so you won't be judged. This is an argument for what I call enlightened self-interest. Right? Enlightened self-interest based on like a base foundation level of humility. Um, th- the thing about looking at somebody else and knowing they're wrong is knowing that person is wrong is not the same as knowing you are right. They can be wrong and you can still not be right. So Jesus gives two arguments for loving enemies. One, he says, like, love your enemies because God is kind even to the wicked. Like, love your enemies because you're being like God. And the other thing Jesus says is don't judge because you don't want to tip too quickly the table of mercy that you need to eat from. Now, I, I, this brings us, as we come to a close, just into this act of communion that we're going to take together this morning. Because the night before Jesus dies, he's at a dinner table with this set of disciples. Simon is there. Matthew is there. Chances are they still don't agree on Rome. And Jesus looks around at this diverse table of disciples, and he knows two things. Number one, none of them have figured out what he's actually about. And they're about to prove it. Um, Number two, none of them in the next 24 hours are going to live up to their highest ideals. The one thing these 12 people have in common is that none of them have figured it out and none of them are going to live up to their highest ideals. And so Jesus looks around at them and says, I'm going to take you all as you are, passionate, convicted, and totally broken. I'm going to take you as you are in your great ideals and in your deep hypocrisy, which is about to be on display. This is my body, which is given for you, to confront you and to heal you. To confront you, Simon, to confront you, Matthew, and to heal you, Simon, and to heal you, Matthew. Both of you need me for this. With that moment in mind, I invite you to just hold your communion elements for a moment. Um, If you didn't find these coming in, there's baskets available at each door of communion elements. And we're going to read together the confession that is going to be up on the screen behind me. Please read with me. We confess that we have not seen others as you see them, both broken and beloved. We confess we have sought a false righteousness based on who we avoid or despise. We confess we have neglected your call to service and sacrifice. We confess we have judged with a harshness we would not wish for ourselves. We confess we have not behaved like children of God, whose kindness leads all to repentance. Lord, Forgive us.
On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat. After supper, Jesus took the cup and said, This is the covenant, the new covenant poured out in my blood. As often as you drink this, do it in remembrance of me. Let's drink. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that your mercy for us is so scandalously great. That you call tax collectors and zealots, fishermen, all hypocrites. All failing to understand and living up to the things we do understand. And still you say to us, come. There's mercy, there's forgiveness, there's fresh beginnings. There's a place for you in the story I'm writing. We pray you would give us the courage and the scandalous grace to offer that same invitation to others. That we would truly be your body, one body, broken and beloved. Feasting from one table of mercy. Receiving your kindness that leads us to repentance and real transformation and change. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.